Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. So uh, last week we began Galatians, and for us, it starts a little bit slow, and that will continue today. Uh, we, we don't quite, it's hard for us to kind of get, get into what Paul is saying here at the beginning, so just a little bit more background, and then we'll see uh, what he says today. But uh, Galatians was written to some churches that Paul started. He and Barnabas started these churches on their first mission, missionary journey, and that is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. Uh, Galatians is written in between, I think, in between Acts 14 and Acts 15 in that slice of time. And Paul's addressing what, what is a crisis. Um, he and Barnabas make a loop. You can see that on the map behind me. They're back in Antioch and it seems like pretty quickly, which is a church that sent them, pretty quickly after they return to their home base, some Jewish Christians go to these Gentile churches that he started in Galatia. And they start saying to everybody, you, you need to not just trust Jesus, but you also need to follow the Old Testament law. You need both of those things to be saved. Jesus plus the Old Testament law. And where it gets back to Paul and he fires off this letter and there's urgency and emotion and passion behind it because it is a crisis. He's got these baby Christians who are being taught things that are just, they're, they're fundamentally untrue. And so their, their foundation and their faith uh, is, being, is being tested. It's being shaken. And, and it, it, to the degree that Paul says to them, y'all are in danger of deserting, of abandoning God. Those are strong things he says about the Galatians. Y'all are in danger of abandoning God. You haven't done it yet, but you're, that's the direction you're heading. And to these Jewish Christians, he says, y'all are under God's curse, which is about the worst thing you can say to somebody. So again, this is a serious situation. And it appears that these Jewish Christians are undermining Paul's authority in two ways. They're saying he's not a genuine apostle. And because he's not a genuine apostle, he wasn't truly sent by God, then you can't trust his message. And so these early, this early chapter, chapter one, Paul is addressing both of those things. And again, we kind of can lose some of the force behind what he's saying, because for most of us, we, we don't have an issue with Paul as an apostle. And we don't have an issue with the truth that he taught. Half the New Testament he wrote, and most of us were like, yeah, that's good. He wrote that and it came from God, but that's not what's going on in these churches in Galatia here in the late 40s. So we'll pick up in verse 11 of chapter 1. Paul, again, kind of defending his own calling and defending the message that he brought to these churches. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. So that's his thesis statement this morning. The gospel that I preached to you, I got straight from God. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's with Peter, and I stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. 
They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem. So Paul's claim, the gospel that I preached to y'all, Galatians, it came straight from God. I didn't get it from anybody else. I didn't make it up, and I didn't get it from any other human authority. And as I grew in my understanding, I wasn't taught by these other human authorities. This was a revelation, an unveiling, a disclosing of something that had been previously hidden. The light switch came on, and Jesus is the one who threw it. He's, he revealed himself to me and this gospel that I'm now preaching to you. So that's, his, that's the headline. And then he supports that headline in two different ways. He says, you know who I used to be. Before I became a Christian and began preaching this gospel to the Gentiles. And then let me tell you what I did in the 14 years after my calling and conversion. So before we dive in, just real quick, uh, Acts 9, you can see Paul's uh, recollection, his testimony of his calling and conversion. And for him, those things are really closely tied together. Uh, He was converted and called to preach to the Gentiles within three days of each other. He's headed to Damascus. He has authority, letters from Jerusalem to arrest believers who are in Damascus. He's on the road, and then he sees this bright light, hears a voice. What I think happened, and you don't have to agree, I think he, phys- I think he, he saw Jesus physically with his eyes, seated at the right hand of the Father, and he heard his voice. When Paul talks about his own uh, salvation, these uh, resurrection appearances in 1 Corinthians 15, he uses the same word for how Jesus appeared to Peter and James and John and the other 12 and how he appeared to him. In his mind, they're the same. And so he has this incredible encounter with the Lord and then he's blind and he goes to a a guy's house named Judas and then a prophet comes named Ananias and helps fill in the blanks for him. And he pretty quickly begins to preach to the Gentiles within just a handful of days. So that word calling and conversion are not the same thing, but for Paul, they're super tightly interwoven with each other. They're almost simultaneous for him. And what he's talking about in Galatians is his calling to be an apostle to the Gentiles, but that's right on the heels of his conversion. So again, stepping back, Paul says, y'all know who I was before I was called. And then this is what I did for the 14 years after I was called. Here's my alibi. This is where I was. And the punchline is I wasn't in Jerusalem. And so those are his two, which those might not be convincing proofs to you, but to his audience, what he's trying to say to them is there was no way that this gospel that I preached to you could have come from anybody other than God. The transformation in me was so profound, and I wasn't where the people were who could have taught me. I wasn't anywhere near them for 14 years. So we'll unpack both of those things. First, Paul says to them, y'all know who I was before I was called by God. And two things that y'all know about me. One, I was intensely or exceeding, uh, exceedingly persecuting the church. That's an intensive word. He was persecuting the church extraordinarily. He was trying to wipe it off the face of the earth. He was trying to destroy it. Paul was violently opposed to the gospel. This message that he has been proclaiming at this point For 14, 15, 16, 17 years that he suffered for, he's saying before I was called, I was vehemently, adamantly, and violently opposed to this truth that Jesus is the Messiah. 
Again, he didn't just disagree on some kind of an intellectual level. He didn't just disagree on an emotional level. He was so opposed to this message that Jesus is the gospel. His, his words, you can, he describes himself a little bit in Acts, I think it's 22, and again in Acts 26, he describes his calling and conversion, and he gives a, a bit more detail in, in both of those places. And he almost sounds obsessed, unhinged, in his desire to stamp out Christianity. And, and it's, as a Pharisee, he, he had a very clear sense of who the Messiah would be, the, God's right-hand man, favored, blessed by God. Deuteronomy, I think it's 24, says, cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. And the Jews applied that to crucifixion victims because they were crucified on a tree. We know, Paul knows, early Christians made no secret of the fact that Jesus was crucified. So in Paul's mind, Jesus can't be the Messiah. He can't be God's blessed, favored, right-hand man if he was crucified, because if he was crucified, he was cursed by God. You can't be cursed and blessed in the same time in Paul's mind. Can't be. It's blasphemy to say that Jesus is the Messiah. And so Paul, again, is violent in his opposition to this message. He is actively seeking to stamp it out wherever he can. And he goes on, he says, and I was, I was, I was at the top of my class when it comes to obeying the law, I was zealous. I was an enthusiastic adherent of the traditions of my fathers. Jesus calls that the tradition of the elders or the tradition of men. We've talked about this before. The Old Testament contains 613 written commands. For instance, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath. But then over time, around that written law, there was an, an oral law was kind of raised up. And it was people, I think, with the best of intentions who were trying to help folks understand how to obey the written law. So there's 39 lists of, there's a list of 39 activities that you can't do. Don't work, that's written. The 39 activities, that's oral. These are the things that constitute work. And what Paul would say is both of those are equally authoritative, equally binding upon the Jew. God is, he's, God is just as in the written law as he is in the oral law and vice Versa. And so if you want to be obedient to him, you got to obey all of that. And you can see quickly how burdensome that would, that would become. And that's where Jesus and the Pharisees had a lot, of, a lot of conflict. But Paul is saying, I was, when it comes to following the law, I'm, I'm, I'm passing my peers by. Again, I'm at the top of the class. When he talks about himself in Philippians, he says, when it comes to obeying the law, I was faultless. I, I, I kept it without breaking it at all. I was, again, faultless in my obedience. And now Paul is saying, you guys know the message that I preach to you. I preach that Jesus is the Messiah and I preached freedom from the law. You know who I was and you know what I told you. Something happened in there. For, for, for someone to go from being violently opposed to this message to willing to suffer for this message, from someone going, I... I keep the law without fault, not just the written but the oral law, to someone who's now saying you're free from the law in terms of how you're standing before the Lord. Something had to happen there. He talks very briefly about his calling, said I was set apart from 
my mother's womb. That's language from Jeremiah and Isaiah about, again, a calling that God has on particular people. We talk about the good works that God's created in advance for us to do. God's formed you, for, God has formed us and he knows us from our mother's womb, so that can apply to us too. He called me by his grace. Paul says, even though I was the, the most righteous of the righteous, I didn't deserve to have Jesus revealed to me. It was God's undeserved favor and it was for the sake of of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. And when I got that calling, here's what I did. I began to obey it. I went to Arabia for three, for three years. We don't know what he did there. Then I went to Jerusalem for 15 days. And then I went to Syria and Cilicia for another 10 or 11 years. You can't see the names on that map behind me. It was the best I could find, but they're really small. All you need to know and I need to know is that pink star is Jerusalem. Those green stars are where Paul spent 14 years and they're not the same place. That's all he's trying to communicate. Again, that's his alibi. If you're accusing me, Jewish Christians, of getting my gospel from other people and being taught by other people, I was never in the spot where that could happen. I spent 14 years away from Jerusalem, where the, from the mothership, from the main church, from the place where all the apostles were. I, I wasn't even there. And when I went, I only went for two weeks. I was there for 15 days and it wasn't to be taught. It was to get to know, to be, become acquainted with Peter. I only met two of the guys. I met Peter and James. That's it. There was no time for me to be taught. In Acts 22, he may have intended to stay in Jerusalem longer. In Acts 22, he says he has a vision when he's in the temple and Jesus says to him, you got to leave. There are people here who want to kill you. Go to the Gentiles. So he doesn't stay, who knows how long he intended to stay in Jerusalem, but he only stayed for 15 days. And then he goes up uh, to, to where we find him later uh, in Acts, the end of Acts 11. And then in Acts 13, he goes up to Antioch, or excuse me, to Tarsus. There's these missing years in, of Paul's life in Acts. And it's, it, it, didn't, it didn't further Luke's story. Luke's telling Acts and it's, the expansion of the church, it's not what God is doing in Paul. And so he leaves out this huge chunk of 14 years right after Paul is converted where we don't know exactly what he was doing. We get little hints that Paul gives. He seems to have been preaching in Arabia because the king there locked the city down. And you don't, Paul did something to cause the king to lock the city down. And looking at Acts, what he tends to do to tick off people is preach the gospel. So the assumption is, he began to preach immediately. And we see churches in these areas where Paul mentions going, even though we don't have a record of them being founded in Acts. So again, it's, it's supposition, but it's a good one that he spent those 14 years proclaiming the gospel. But again, the bottom line for us is he wasn't in Jerusalem. That's what he wants the Galatians to see. From the moment I was called, I began to proclaim the gospel to Gentiles. And I did it in all of these far-flung places. And when I finally went to Jerusalem, and we'll see this next week, 14 years later, and I told the apostles what I'd been doing, they blessed it. They didn't tell me I was wrong. They didn't say I was preaching the wrong thing. They didn't say I was a heretic. They didn't say my gospel was perverted or distorted. They blessed what I was doing. So again, that picture there for the Galatians is y'all can trust what I told you. It came from God, not from anybody else. And when I brought it to other people 14 years later, they blessed it. And they said, yeah, that's absolutely. God is working through you among the Gentiles. And so for us, we hear that. And again, we're like, well, I kind of, I was already on board with Paul. 
Didn't have a problem with him. Half the New Testament written by him. I, I assumed his message was from God. How does this really connect in to, for, for us? And the thing I was thinking about, and hopefully this will be encouraging to you, hope. Confident expectation of a better future that's rooted in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. If we took a poll of Christians in 33, 34 AD, and we said least likely people to be converted, Paul's got to be top three, if not number one on the list. He's got to be. He is notorious in his aggression in stamping out the gospel. Again, when he's talking about himself, he almost sounds crazy. He's, I, I, where, I went where they were. I tried to get them to blaspheme. If there was, a, if there was an opportunity to, convict, to, to give them the death penalty, I voted yes. Like, think about how anti a message you have to be that you're willing to vote that somebody who believes that should be killed. I mean, that's how the penalty for blasphemy is death, and that's how convinced Paul was that Christians were wrong, that they were blasphemers. He was willing to vote for people to be, to be executed. And then we see him on a dime, 180 degrees, within just a handful of days, he's out proclaiming Jesus is the Messiah, which was the message he had spent, how, you know, however long that was, if it was six months or 12 months or 18 months from Jesus' resurrection until his conversion, two years maybe max. In that window, he'd spent all of this time actively trying to stamp out this message, and now he's actively promoting it. You see somebody, again, when you're thinking about who Paul used to be. I don't know about him. He may be beyond, intellectually, we would say nobody's beyond the reach, the grace, the mercy of God. But in our hearts, there are people and we think, I don't know about that. And what's hard for us is many of us love at least one of those people. But their hearts are so hardened towards the Lord. We're going, I don't, again, intellectually, yes, but on an emotional level, we're going, I, just, I don't know. They're so angry. They're so hostile. Their heart is so hard. They're living in such flagrant rebellion. They're so disinterested. And we wonder, again, not intellectually, nobody's beyond saving. But in our hearts, it's hard to maintain hope. It's difficult to do that. When months and years, and even for some of you, it's decades, have elapsed. And you still see this person that you love far from the Lord. And they're not, like, there's, there's no indication. And there was no indication for Paul. He was going to arrest people when he was saved. Like, there was no, outwardly, there's no softening of his heart that everybody, oh, yeah, he's getting close. Showing up at church now. If he's showing up at church, it's to arrest you. It's not because he's interested in what you're saying. Paul's coming to Bible study. Paul's asking questions. He's not doing any of that. On a dime. It's confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus and everything changes for him. What about your loved one? 
And what would it look like for you to renew your hope that they could be saved? Again, hope deferred makes the heart sick, so hope is difficult. The waiting is what's so hard. What about for the rest of our time in Galatians? I don't know how long it'll be, a few months. What would it look like for you to recommit, not to rote prayers, but to engage in your heart in prayer that God would reveal himself to that person that you love who seems to be as far away as possible? What would it look like for you to even say, God, if you want to, I've gotten shot down so many times, but even if, if you want to use me again, I'm, I'm here. I want to believe that you haven't, that this person is not too far gone. Could you re-engage him in hope for that man or that woman, at least for the next few months? Let Paul encourage you. And also for us, for those of you who are already following Jesus. I think Paul can be an encouragement to us. Sometimes we forget the power of the gospel to change our lives. It can become cliche or trite. This is complete supposition, so you can toss it if you want. I think Paul got... I don't think Paul would have been converted with anything less than what he received, if that makes sense. I think the level of his encounter, which I think is unique with Jesus, was what was sufficient for him to actually be converted. He already knew that the Christians believed Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he thought it was blasphemous that Jesus was the Messiah. He knew. I think he had a unique calling, and I think he had a unique conversion that was tied to that. But for us, I think the, the truth of this encounter with the Lord is a reminder of the power of the gospel. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the Messiah, the Savior, King. You know that. How does that filter into your life? You are intimately connected with the King of the universe who has defeated every potential enemy, sin, Satan, sickness, death. He's he's defeated all of them. He's actively establishing his rule and his reign in your heart and in our world. How does that impact the way you see areas where you're struggling and suffering? Death, the whole understanding of death is rewritten after the resurrection. It's no longer the end of the story. Suffering can be redeemed. Sickness can be healed and endured. Even evil is not just overthrown, but can be undone. The effects of the fall are being reversed. Those can all sound like trite cliches, but allow the truth of that to penetrate your heart. Think about, again, for Paul... This guy, from, we don't know a ton about him. He doesn't share a lot about himself, and I'm not a psychologist, but reading the, the glimpses he gives us into his identity, his self-concept, the foundation of who he was, was I'm a, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. My whole identity is built and based on my obedience to God as revealed in the law. 
That's who I am. All of that is wrecked on the road to Damascus. Devastated. Absolutely devastated. It's not, again, just, oh, this thing that I thought was untrue turns out to be true. He had been actively arresting, persecuting, and participating in the execution of Christians. People who were actually, in his mind, what he's doing is his expression of love and loyalty and faithfulness to the Lord. This is what it looks like to be faithful to you. I'm stamping out heresy. And it turns out what he's stamping out is the truth. This God who he says, I know him better than anybody. Well, maybe not. He goes from saying I was faultless in keeping the law to I'm the chief sinner. Those are two different categories. This isn't just I'm academically wrong about something. This is I've personally and deeply sinned against the Lord. What I want you to hear there is, and he had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, and it upended things initially in a devastating way, and, and, and I mean that not negatively, but in the true sense. Everything's turned upside down for him. And he's called into this new life. It's what I want you to take from that is the power of the gospel. Look what it did in his life. Someone who was running as hard as he could this way. Again, on a dime, he starts running as hard as he can this way. What is your situation today where you've lost hope? Where you're saying, now we're not talking about others, we're talking about us. What's the situation where you've lost hope? Where you've maybe quit engaging the Lord? It's been too long or things aren't changing or it's too hard for whatever reason. You've lost sight of the power of the gospel to impact that situation. To impact your heart, at least in terms of your perspective, and also to impact those circumstances. And what would it look like for you to re-engage that this morning? Part of what we want to say is the message that Paul preached is true. It came straight from the Lord. And that message is Jesus is the Messiah. And that means something to us. And that means something to the world. Those aren't just words. Again, it means he's defeated every enemy that we have. And he's actively working to establish his rule and his reign in us and in our world. Let's pray. Bo, you can come back up if you would please, ministry teams. This is how I want you, I want you to put yourself in one of these two buckets. Either you're, you're, you're in a situation where if you were honest, you would say, I've lost hope in this area of my life. I need to know what the gospel application is what the application of the gospel is to this, to this relationship, to this circumstance, to this condition. And we want to pray that God would speak to you. I think about Jesus with Paul. He revealed himself to Paul in a way that Paul could understand and that was sufficient to accomplish the work that he wanted to in Paul's life. He'll do the same thing for you if you'll ask him.
So you put your finger on that place in your life where you're saying, I I need to know Jesus is the Messiah. I need to know Jesus is the Savior King in this area of my life. We'd love to pray with you about that. Others of you, the thing you're thinking about is that Paul in your own life, that one who is whose heart is so hard, who seems so uninterested or maybe even hostile. In your most honest moments, you would say, I don't know. I don't know about it. Would you re-engage the Lord at least over these next few months on their behalf? You can come and you can kneel here at the altar or stand at the altar and pray for that person and maybe recommit yourself to interceding for them in the next, over the next few months. There may even be somebody here and you're like, I'm Paul. That's me. My heart is hard. I'm hostile. I'm not interested. You're interested enough to be here. And that's not nothing. And I would encourage you. Ask the question. Jesus, if you're real, if all this is true, show me. See what he does. Holy Spirit, would you move in each one of our hearts? I pray that you would stir hope in those of us who've lost it in some particular area of our life. And God, we want to continue to pray for people that we know and love who are far from you. Would you renew hope in our hearts that they're not beyond your reach? That even now you're actively wooing. We may not be able to see anything on the surface but we want to trust that you're actively wooing them, that you're bringing conviction and opening their eyes to the reality of their need and of your sufficiency. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 